Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. Do you all remember Larry, the lawn chair guy? Yeah, you remember him, the guy who bought 45 balloon, weather balloons and attached them to a lawn chair? Whatever makes a guy do that, I don't know. His ambition all of his life was to fly, but he, his eyesight was so bad he couldn't become a pilot. So he decided one day to float his lawn chair and try to land 300 miles away in the Mojave Desert. But the balloons, as if you know the story, took him up a lot farther and a lot faster than he expected to 16,000 feet above Long Beach, California kind of the the L.A. metro area, kind of a busy area. Perplexed airline pilots reported seeing what appeared to be a man suspended in midair with a bunch of balloons, really curious about it, going across the flight path. Larry, feeling cold and dizzy in the thin air, began to decide he better get down lower, so he took his pellet gun and shot out a few balloons and then got nervous and dropped his pellet gun. But he got enough of them popped, so he came down about 10 miles further inland from where he started only to land in a bunch of high-voltage power lines, causing a power outage for 20 minutes in most of Long Beach. The police got there, and they uh, were waiting for him to climb down from the power lines, and they arrested him, saying, I know there are several violations. We'll figure out what they were later. (laughs) And they asked him, why did you do that? And he said, well, it's something I had to do. I had this dream for 20 years, and if I didn't do it, I would have ended up going to the funny farm. As crazy as that is, there's something in that that I think we all understand. We want some meaningful dreams to happen in our life, some things that we want to see done. Maybe you're trying to figure out your career right now. Maybe you're more established in a career and you're starting to wonder about how do I leverage my life to really count for the things I want it to count for eternity. Maybe you're retired and you think, I still have a lot in me. I still want to make a big difference. This God-given desire is a major reason why we're starting this series today, We Love Our City. And I want to begin today by examining a question, one simple complex question all in one. Why are we here? Meaning, why do we live in this particular time in history in central Ohio with the friends and family that we have at Quest, at the job we have in the particular community we live in? Now, I know a lot of you are going to say, well, you know, I I married somebody and moved here. My family was here. I I moved here because of a job, my company. Uh, But But is that really true of reality? Luke records in a message that Paul spoke to the wise men in Athens, and he begins to answer this question of why am I here in this. In Acts 17, it says this, The God who has made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. So what's he saying? He's saying God put you here in the community 
in this time. God even puts you here at Quest today. He has literally brought all of us from the ends of the earth, from Minnesota, from Kentucky, from Texas, from Colorado, from California, from India, from Syria, from Central America, the east and the west coast, and yes, even Michigan. (laughs) Okay. What the Bible is saying is almost too big to think about, isn't it? I mean, really. God, knowing the future, knowing our choices, knowing the mistakes each of us are going to make, somehow he continues to weave all of that together into a purposeful plan. So why has he brought us all together here? Well, let's go to Jesus for that answer. Jesus in this debate with the religious leaders one day uh, is in a debate with the religious leaders. and, and, And this lawyer, the Pharisees, comes up to him and asks Jesus a question, trying to trick Jesus into saying something they could either uh, arrest him for or at least call him a heretic over and discredit him in front of the crowds. And, And the question that actually is asked has profound ramifications for the question we're dealing with. Why are we here? The lawyer asked Jesus in Matthew 22, Teacher, Which is the greatest commandment in the law? In other words, what is our purpose for living? What does God really want from us? Why are we here? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's what God really wants of us, for us to pursue him and love him, for us to be in right, loving relationship with him. Every single week we talk about this, about loving God and God loving us and having that kind of real relationship because relationship with him is part of that mission. Paul echoes this where we were reading a minute ago in Acts 17 when he says, God did this, in other words, he brought them all together in this particular time so that they would seek him. And perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. God wants you to know him and to love him and to receive his love. He wants you to hunger and thirst for him so that you will seek him and you will find him. God wants you to know his love and be known by him. Back to Jesus, though. He doesn't stop at saying just that. He says, this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, Jesus says. Everything about why we're here, about how we are supposed to live, can be summarized in this, what theologians call the great commandment. Now, I didn't misspeak. I said great commandment, singular is how theologians talk to it, but not not commandments, plural, because these two commandments cannot be separated. Love for God and love for others cannot happen in isolation from one another. If you don't know God and receive his love, then you don't even know fully what love really is. If you don't love others, it's a sign that you haven't yet fully received all God's love for you and you aren't following him in every area of your life the way he wants you to yet, because to love him is to love those he loves. We see this principle in how we learn, even uh, in just a practical sense. The, the best test of whether we really understand a concept is to actually teach it to someone else. Remember maybe the time when you were trying to teach something you thought you really knew well to somebody, and all of a sudden you went, wow, I, I don't really fully get this yet, because you're struggling to teach it. 
Explaining why you believe what you believe in both words and actions is the best way to learn. Giving love to others deepens our understanding of God's love for us. Love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus says. But who's our neighbor? Now, we, if you've been around church a long time, you probably know Jesus tells this parable about it and answers that question. But today, we're going to actually skip back to Jeremiah in the Old Testament, who helps us relate this answer, I think, even maybe a little bit better to our current daily struggle and how we are to answer this question, why are we here and how do we follow Jesus? Somewhere right around 587 B.C., the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar is taking over the entire known world. We know that in relation to Jerusalem and Israel, about three times over the years, Babylonians uh, took over Jerusalem because of different rebellions and cap- took captives from Israel back to Babylon. And forth- this is a forced resettlement. And throughout all these times, it's estimated they maybe took 5 to 10% of the Jewish population and resettled them. And we know that they took many of the younger families and the leaders and the ruling class, the successful businessmen. And, and we know that partially because remember Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, Shaq and Abednego, if you heard those stories, they've actually already been in Babylon for almost a decade at the time Jeremiah writes what we're going to look at today. They forced them to resettle. And then they come back again and they take more people. They take the artisans, they take the craftsmen, they take their families from Israel and they force march them 1,000 miles through the desert to resettle them. Now Babylon in that day was actually not all that different than America today. It was the world superpower. It was the seat of economic, intellectual, artistic, architectural, scientific power of that day. It was also a pluralistic society. Babylon had conquered many tribes and many peoples and had done the same thing to them, forcing them to resettle back to Babylon. So there were many religions, many cultures, many differences in family and tribal and political ways of seeing the world. Now, God to the Israelites had been asking them for several centuries to repent of their sin, and they continually refused, bringing them to this place of being conquered as a punishment, yet even in this, God has a redemptive plan attached to the whole thing. As we look at Jeremiah 29, we actually see those who are resettled Jews who have finally repented of their sins, and they were wrestling with what does it look like to be a faithful follower of God in this new pluralistic society and culture in which they had been thrust. Now, We'll read the text in a moment, but, but what we're going to see is that the people were wrestling with, as, as reflected in Jeremiah, two competing voices in their minds that were trying to answer the question, why are we here? And the first voice it was coming from some of the Israelite religious leaders telling them, God sent you into captivity to punish us for our sins that we won't, uh, but we won't be in this pagan, uh, pluralistic culture, God-forsaken place for long. So just endure it, put up with it, don't mix, don't settle, just do what you need to do to personally survive and thrive, and do not, above all else, get infected by getting close to the sin of this culture or the people of this culture. And God, through Jeremiah, bluntly states, the people saying that are false prophets. There's such a temptation in the church to take this point of view. It certainly has been a prominent voice in the American church for the past 60 years to separate ourselves from the culture, to separate ourselves from those who would tempt us 
to sin and live an ungodly life in any way. Now, when we follow this voice, we tend to put more emphasis on personal freedom from sin than we do on loving those around us. And we cultivate this kind of tribalistic us-and-them mindset that actually leads us to living as self-righteous people comparing ourselves to others so that we can feel better about ourselves in that comparison. Oh, we'll still go to the movies and we'll complain about how those movies assault our faith and our values, but we still go see them. And we still engage in the institutions of our society and government, education, other services when they help us gain a benefit. But our primary emphasis in life tends to, when we listen to this voice, to be to stay separate, to stay safe from the temptation and sin and pray and wait for Jesus to come and change things and take us home. So that's the first voice. The second voice actually opposes that, and it's coming to them directly from the Babylonians themselves, saying to them, we want you as the people of God to completely assimilate with us. We want you to take on our virtues, support our views and our causes, become just like us. If you will think about it from the Babylonian perspective, They've actually conquered many nations and tribes and and they have a mess on their hands, a mess that could explode in their face at any moment with rebellion. And they're actually trying to solve a simple problem, actually a complex one, I guess. How do you create a unified empire out of so many different people groups? Even modern theorists say that the only way you can do that, there's basically three ways. One is you actually conquer people and you subjugate them. You force them to basically serve you, to be your slaves in a sense. You force them to believe what you want them to believe. You force them to be educated in the way you were educated. You you make them talk and look like you and have the same customs as you. You essentially enslave them. But the problem with that approach in history is that it may frequently result in initial conformity, but it always blows up in rebellion and revolt eventually. Uh, The second way is uh, to exterminate them, to just repopulate them. But that never works because some people always escape and they come back with a passionate vengeance. The third way is to embrace and assimilate the young and the influencers in that culture so that after one generation, all the wealthy, successful, well-educated people that they have conquered are actually more Babylonian now than they are Jewish or whatever tribe they were before. So the way they did this was to basically welcome them and say, you can come live with us and live around us. You can do business with us. You can even be in leadership positions with us. And you can have all the prosperity what you want if you become like us. Now, think about that for a second in this context. Separating a few people and relocating them taking the wealthy and the rulers of Israel and force-marching them in poverty and rags 1,000 miles through the desert, resettling them in shanty towns, and then offering them the opportunity to leave their rags behind and return to prosperity that they had been used to for generations if you'll become just like us. Think about how hard that is to not choose to fit in and become like the dominant culture around us. So this is the second voice of the Israelites. Just become one of us. You can, you too can once again have all the prosperity and influence you ever wanted that you're used to living in. 
Some of us, I think, face this temptation at times in business, don't we? The pressure to conform to office culture or expectations, even when they violate your sense of integrity or your faith. Because if you don't, you're less likely to get the promotion. You're less likely to get the sale. That's just, that's just the way things are in business, right, we say? You, you face this in your community with friends, pressure to conform in conversations and practices that make you uncomfortable at times. This tension in life is very, very real for them and for us. The first voice in our head said, stay away. The, the second voice said, just embrace the culture and assimilate. But Jeremiah, who stayed in Jerusalem, writes this to those in exile and gives us a third way of thinking about this, a, a Jesus kind of way to live. Jeremiah writes in verse 4, he says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Okay, hold a minute. There it is again. You see, we think... The Babylonians brought me here, not God. Or we think our circumstances or our choices brought me here. But who brought you here? Is it really a job change? Was it really coming to college and, and you choosing to stay? Was it marrying someone who was from here that you met at college and you just stayed here? Was it really your own choice? No, Jeremiah says, whatever the reason you got here, whoever you think is behind getting you here, I, God, am the one who really brought you here. You may have left family behind somewhere else in the country. You may feel exiled from a much warmer climate or a much prettier geography to the cold flatlands of Columbus that have the ability to snow and thunderstorm and have tornadoes all in the same day. I'm so glad I didn't referee soccer yesterday. But it is God who is at work in bringing you here, here and now. Answering the question of why we are here begins with God. So God speaking through Jeremiah goes on and clarifying what that looks like. And it's neither to separate nor is it to assimilate. Instead, it is a third option. The third voice, the third way to live is to engage culture deeply and be like Jesus. God goes on and Jeremiah saying, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters and increase in number there. Do not decrease. God is saying, move in, settle, become part of the community, live your life, bring kids into the world, raise your families. And God goes on yet further. He says, also... Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, that phrase, um, peace and prosperity, is actually one Hebrew word, shalom. Now, we often translate shalom merely as peace, but scholars are unanimous in saying shalom means so much more than just a lack of conflict. It means a universal flourishing, a thriving, a delight, a wholeness of body and mind and spirit, a wholeness of creation. Shalom is when all of our natural needs are satisfied and our gifts are fully flourishing and everything is working together really well that we are delighted and we find ourselves in awe of the goodness of our creator. It's, it's, it's the idea that we're in sync with God and everything is the way it is designed to be hitting on all cylinders. There's this depth of satisfaction that comes when we experience shalom that we can hardly imagine. 
The word, the text is, is, is driving, is actually the reason why we named the counseling center Thrive Counseling and Coaching Center. It's not just a ministry to help people who in our community get out of crisis and conquer problems, although it does that really well and it's there for that. It is a ministry designed to help people thrive, to maximize who they're created to be, whether they're curious about Jesus or not. So many of you know, Wendy and I lived in Oklahoma. I lived there for 17 years. And it's got the second largest Native American population of any state. And we were more consistently, when we lived there, reminded of the history of the Native Americans, uh, particularly the Trail of Tears. It is really similar to what the Israelites experienced. This Trail of Tears was the forced removal of many Native American tribes from their traditional homes in the southeastern U.S. in the 1830s and 40s. And the Indians were forced to leave their belongings and their land and march, some of them in chains, all the way to Oklahoma, over a thousand miles. And they experienced severe weather conditions and the government wasn't prepared with adequate supplies of food. So thousands and thousands of Indians died from disease and malnutrition. Remembering the Trail of Tears is very much a part of the history of the Native Americans located in Oklahoma. Now, Wendy one time went to the memorial there, and there are actually still coals burning today that have never stopped burning, still carrying the flame that has been passed on from those coals that were carried along that trail of tears 200 years ago. They burn in remembrance of what the people had been through. Native Americans were not considered citizens back then, and they were expected to assimilate into culture as seen even in the children not being allowed to wear their traditional garb to school. They had to wear Western clothes to be indoctrinated in Western values in order to go to school. See, what God is asking the Israelites to do in seeking the peace and prosperity of Babylon, a nation that is actually still at this moment when this is being read to them in the process of decimating their beloved country as a Babylon would once again, within about a year of the writing of this, put down another rebellion in Judea and at that time completely destroy the temple down to its foundations and their culture. That's so similar to asking the Native Americans to pray for white, the white man's peace and prosperity after such devastating treatment and an attempt to assimilate them into Western culture after decades of experiencing genocide at the hands of the white man. Asking them to become a part of their oppressors. How do you do that? Those wounds just don't heal overnight. And yet God is saying through this scripture, I want you to help Babylon, those people who conquered you and killed so many of your family and friends and countrymen. I want you to live in such a way that your presence helps them thrive as you thrive. Seek ways to engage in relationship with them in business and relationship and friendship and service. Even though they're your enemies, seek that they would thrive. Don't avoid them. Don't stay away from people because you fear you might fall into sin or you're angry at them or they're standoffish or or they're different or they adamantly disagree with you. Find ways to live with them and serve them so that whether they believe or not, whether they change or not, they thrive. Go into the city. Be involved. Be actively part of the solution to seek its good and be like Jesus to the community. Don't draw away and don't be like them. 
but fully engage in the culture around you. And as you engage, be like Jesus. That's what God is asking us to do in how we are to love our city. Why? Well, God goes on. Pray to the Lord for your city because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Oh, so this is just a selfish motive. We do this because we want to prosper. Good luck if that's what you think. I don't know anyone who has been able to love their enemies like God is asking here and still have any kind of selfish motive left in them. To truly love people who are prideful and superior like the Israelites' Babylonian conquerors were to them. People who are putting pressure on you to conform to their way of thinking and life and their values. To to love your enemy so much that you genuinely want them to thrive. That drives out any selfish motive out of any of us. But to live this way, it's really hard, isn't it? I mean, it's really hard. To live this way takes constant, intentional thinking and action on our part because it is much easier to either just be separate or to conform and be a part of them. But God is saying loving them and seeking that they thrive is where you will find me and my power and my blessing for you. Jeremiah goes on with the prophecy from God. He says, yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. We so easily encourage people to preach stuff that's just going to make us feel good. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. The church people who say, oh, no, 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 don't do that. Stay away. Careful, or you might get too close. They're religious liars, not speaking for God. There's so much false prophecy today. False prophecy, people peddling fear of culture, fear of end times, voices decrying the evils of our culture, and certainly there are evils in our culture. Yet, we are to live in love, not fear, in our relationships. As Christians, we often fear engaging with parts of our culture because we feel like we might be tempted to sin and fail and sin and get into some bad stuff. And and that just doesn't make sense, that kind of fear. I mean, think about it. We're forgiven. We're forgiven. If we fail and fall, then repent and get back up and try again. Uh, Sin certainly can be damaged, and I don't want to make light of sin, but, but to fear falling into sin... So much that we separate ourselves from the people God has called us to, the city God has called us to. That represents both a lack of faith in God's power to work through us, and it represents a lack of faith in our security in God's love and grace and forgiveness for you, for us. Jesus in his famous prayer recorded in John 17 says it this way when he prays. He says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. See, 
Jesus spent so much time befriending the evildoers and the cast-off sinners that all the religious people were trying to say, don't be around, that the religious leaders tried to smear Jesus' name by saying, Jesus is just a sinner and a drunkard because he spent so much time drinking and talking with sinners at parties. Two verses further down in Jeremiah is one of the favorite quoted verses of many Christians, and it's so often taken out of context. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Think about this in this context of them having been relocated a thousand miles. My plans are not to harm you. My plans are to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. See, we love to read this as a promise that God is making to make our lives better, to encourage ourselves in times of difficulty, and it is certainly saying that. But we don't get the full meaning of it, how to get there, how we should live, why we are here until we read it in context. The Jews are exiled in Babylon, confused by the prophets, telling them they're going to be released soon and be brought back to Jerusalem. And Jeremiah says, no, the destruction of Jerusalem is going to happen. It's not going to be a safe place for you to come back here. This verse was God speaking through Jeremiah, telling the people, those prophets are false and they're going to have to wait 70 years. And so for now and going forward, seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon. That's tough news really going to be here that long? So God gives them hope with this verse to understand what he's doing. God is still in control. And while things will be difficult, God has a mission and a why for them being right there, right where they are now. God is with them. That verse is in that context of saying, I have a future and a hope for you now, right where you are. Similar to the Jews living in Babylon, we today live in a pluralistic society, a society that is increasingly hostile to Christian faith. And and God does have a plan for each of our lives and for our church to give us a future and a hope to prosper us. And in the verse right before this, God just got done telling us how we live in relationship within our pluralistic society so that hope and blessing can actually come about. In a sense, think about it, this this chapter captures all of what we mean when we talk about relationships are the mission and when we use the phrase living life as friends with faith. We influence our community through friendship, not antagonism, protest, and political action. We seek blessing and prosperity and healing and the welfare of every single person around us, even especially even those who oppose us most strongly. Like Jesus, who on the cross said of those crucifying him, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So let's kind of fasten our seatbelts, stow the tables. We're going to land this and end here quickly. How do we apply this, begin to apply this this week? I think the first way is that we pray. God emphasizes prayer as this major force in bringing change in Jeremiah and all throughout the Bible. It's so easy for us to de-emphasize prayer in our lives, even as we follow God, to just think that 
We get things done by doing things, especially when we face issues like poverty and broken marriages and loneliness and greed and abuse and the opioid epidemic and so many other issues that we face all the day, every day around us. But, but seeing people raised up out of abuse to a peace-filled, loving relationship, seeing people set free from addiction, seeing people learn to forgive and love in a, in a way that results in strong marriages won't happen just by what we do. Having right programs, the right techniques, the right events, the right staff at church won't itself bring the changes. It's the power of God to save, to make himself real to people through people encountering his spirit that brings a change in the hearts of people. Petitions and protests won't change Washington or Columbus because those things don't change the heart of people. They may get temporary change as somebody bows to the power of it, but it doesn't change the heart. Only God changes the heart. And the human heart, gosh, we're so full of self-interest, aren't we? Only a self-sacrificing, loving God can change our heart. And prayer, that's what ties us to the heart of God and the power of God. Jeremiah says, seek peace and prosperity. Pray for your city to experience it, your neighbors, your friends, even your enemies. So as you walk through your day and see something unjust, pray. When you bump into a friend who doesn't know God, pray for them. When you hear someone's heartache, pray for them. When you're walking the halls of your office, pray for the people you see as you walk and ask God to bless them. Maybe it's just breath prayers. I know that's kind of a, a term within Christianity. All that means is you're walking and under your breath, you're going, God, just bless them. And it's just a quick thing. God, under your breath, God, just touch them. God, would you bring healing to them? God, would you set them free? And when you see a protester or a riot or a, or a politician voicing an opinion that's offensive to you, pray for them that God would bless them, that their lives would thrive instead of getting angry at them. Pray that as Jesus prays and taught us to pray, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it, in he- as it is in heaven. I think that defines the peace and prosperity, and the peace and prosperity defines what God's kingdom coming among us looks like. And second, love your neighbors in word and in deed. This means our love is not limited to words, and it's also not limited to deeds. It's actually both. Now, we're going to talk about that more as we continue to press into this idea over the coming weeks, because God is calling each and every one of us to be more intentional in how we love our city, the people you interact with every single day. As we close, I just want you to remember this. Remember what the Bible says. You are not here by happenstance, or by your choice, or by someone else's choice. God brought you here. And as long as you are here, God has a purpose for you here, a destiny for you to make a difference, to seek the peace and prosperity of your community, of whoever makes up your community. So as we celebrate communion today, I want us to think about this as a table in a sense, because it really was celebrated around a table, around a meal in the past with Jesus. But, but the table is this place of communing. It's a place where we picture and remember what Jesus did for us. And I think Eugene Peterson puts it maybe the best. He says, Jesus put on skin 
And he stepped into our neighborhood to save us. We remember how Jesus offered himself in word and deed, how he became flesh and lived among us and without sin and allowed himself to be broken and allowed his blood to be spilled for the forgiveness of sins. So as we come to this table, we get to commune with God out of gratefulness and joy for that kind of love. As you take the cup and, and the bread as it represents his body as blood, take in the truth and the grace that comes from us knowing God, the truth of grace that empowers you to live more fully focused on seeking the welfare of your community because you're already loved and you're already free. And it's such a joy to bring that to other people. Would you stand with me and let's pray. Father, we want to be your people here in your community. We want to be people who, out of loving you and being loved by you, we love our neighbors really well, even our enemies. Lord, this is who we want to be. We're grateful that Jesus came and served instead of coming to be served. We're grateful that he's already given us the example of this love, and he shares that so freely with us. Lord, fulfill the longing of our hearts to be more like that, to be more like you. And meet us now as we continue to worship in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O. West.org. Thanks for listening.